Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. You're going to love my guest today. Rob Decker is an exciting young guy. He's not super young, but he's younger than I am. Of course, most everybody else is too. But Rob has a really unique past, and his primary objective with what he's doing now today is to share his story of a failed suicide attempt that led to a relationship with God. And he suffered many years of sadness, anger, confusion, and fed that with drugs and alcohol and bad relationships. And then with the help of God, he was able to turn his story into one of forgiveness, understanding, and love. And his desire is to help other people to inspire and encourage and give hope to those who have had similar battles. And we'll talk about that today and what he's doing. But first, welcome. Thanks for being here, Rob Decker. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And yes, it's a unique story. It's very unique. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, just jump right in. Tell us about it and tell us how God has changed your life and what's going on with you today. Absolutely. So I always start my story with my mother. My mother was oldest of five kids. My mom was beaten and abused when she was younger. She grew up in a very dysfunctional home. So the path that I took, you know, it's really just kind of a carryover of the lifestyle that she was part of. So my mom around 16 or 17 years old ends up getting pregnant with me. She was encouraged to have an abortion. Uh, she, you know, obviously didn't take that advice and I appreciate her not taking that <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cause this would be more of a magical conversation. It would. Um, <laughs> and, you know, six months after my birth, she met my father, my dad, the guy that I thought was my dad. She ends up getting pregnant again. They have my sister. And when I was about five years old, I came home from school and I had a diploma, new graduating kindergarten and everything. And, and that day I found out that my dad wasn't my real dad. I had his last name. And when I came home with that diploma, you know, my grandma told my dad, you know, Robert's not one of us. And so you're going to have to change his last name. And so that was the first time where I really felt separated from my family. I just found out my dad wasn't my real dad. And I found out that my sister wasn't my full-blooded sister. And as time went on, you know, in my household, I witnessed a lot of fighting, a lot of drinking, a lot of drug using. It was a lot of loud music, cops being called to our home all the time. I spent many of days listening to my parents argue and fight and bicker. And and there was always this favoritism in my house when it came to my scissor. And not so much my mom, because I think that my mom wanted what was best for me. But my sister, my dad favored her a bit. That was his biological kid. And, you know, I just witnessed a lot of abuse in the house. And, and I grew up in an era. So I grew up in the 80s where dad could hit mom and cops would come and they'd take him down to jail. And two hours later, he'd still be under the influence and come home and they'd start going at it again, you know, and mm-hmm. I grew up in that generation. And that took place for a really long time. By the time I was in high school, 
my mom had a boyfriend. My dad had a girlfriend. They were still married. They were both using. So methamphetamine was like the big drug in my house growing up. My sister started at like 12 years old. She had much older boyfriends. You know, her boyfriends were like 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, and they were all drug dealers and usually gang related. And so we always had this traffic of trouble in our home. And my dad would pay the rent on the house and give us a place to stay. But, you know, my mom was doing her thing with her friends and being intoxicated under the influence. And, you know, eventually for me, it just led to drinking. And then that drinking led into marijuana. And then eventually I was doing things like acid and ecstasy and shrooms and all that kind of stuff. And that was my teenage years. Eventually, by the time I was 17 years old, I was pretty much a full-blown alcoholic got kicked out of the house because we had invited so much trouble into our house that the landlord just gave us the boot. You know, my dad was far gone out of the situation with his girlfriend and my mom was off doing her thing anyway. And, and so it wasn't really a home. You know, we spent many months in that house without food, without electricity, because mom was doing her thing and dad was doing his thing. And, you know, drugs really consume people. And, and this was all normal behavior for me, though. You know, I witnessed a lot of this stuff, a lot of the violence a lot of the drug abuse, you know, I witnessed and, you know, I eventually carried that over into my own life. And I would get involved in these young ladies. And, you know, unfortunately, because I wasn't taught love and trust in those things, like, I had to create my own version of it. And I was a very jealous, insecure, controlling, selfish individual. And I think that for me, I did it more as a protective mechanism, and also learned, you know, it was learned behavior at the same time. And I would just get into one relationship after the next. And, and if a young lady treated me really well, I would walk all over her and I'd cheat on her and treat her like crap, you know, and, and then I'd be really intrigued by those relationships that where I didn't have as much control, where it, it seemed to be more of like a cat and mouse kind of situation. By the time I got into my late 20s, I was a cocaine addict. I mean, I had taken my alcoholism to a whole nother level. And the thing is, is that you would never even really know because I took care of the outside of my body so well with all the fitness and playing sports and stuff, because that's the one thing that I really did enjoy doing was hitting the weights and playing basketball and softball and those kind of things. Uh, By the time I was 27, 28, I had met a young man through a place that I had worked and he was constantly preaching Jesus to me and it worked for him and I appreciated it and stuff, but it just didn't work for me. And I, you know, I really respected him and appreciated him for it, but it just wasn't for me. And around that same time, I met a young lady. And at this time, I was also selling drugs. I was selling steroids and human growth hormone and stuff like that. And so I met her at the bank. She was a teller and I was going to cash a check from some of the drugs that I'd been selling. And I'd actually driven to the bank in another girl's car who I'd been dating at the time, because this is what I do. You know, I maximize every situation and I take advantage of every situation, no matter who it could potentially hurt, which I eventually did hurt that young lady. And, you know, I ended up hanging out with this new girl right away, right away. I, I knew that this was a very, very bad situation. But I jumped into it anyway, because at this point in my life, so late in my 20s, so deep into the drugs, the alcohol, you're yearning for something, but you don't know how to achieve it. And life was actually more stimulating when it was more chaotic. And 
I linked up with this young lady and very early on, we had domestic issues. There was a lot of arguing and fighting and eventually we had to break up. And during that breakup, that gentleman that was preaching the Lord to me, he invited me to a Bible study. And at this point, I had lost my job. Like almost every other job, I would hold on to it for a short period of time. And then I'd eventually lose it because the drugs, the alcohol, relationship stuff, interactions with other people would lead to me losing my jobs. And I went to this Bible study and I received the Lord at that time. And shortly after that, I walked right back into the world because I reconnected with that young lady. At that point, when I went and got saved, she was out escorting. Another thing that took place, I think it was like when the early 2000s is Craigslist, they had like the escort service. And so I found out through a friend that she was escorting and I didn't care for that so much. So I actually reached out to her and we started talking again. And I knew, knew it was such a bad idea but I chose to do it anyway because I was still struggling with drugs and alcohol. Even though I had freshly received the Lord in my life, I was basically homeless, jobless. I was selling the drugs, but I didn't have a lot going for me at all. And we started seeing each other again. Well, the understanding between us was this, you know, you get rid of all your clients and then you and I will try to restart our relationship. And it was her last hoorah, her last client. She had to go on this trip. So she goes and she heads out to Hawaii with this gentleman. And while she's there, she's sending me pictures of black and blue eyes. She's telling me how he forced himself on her, how he humiliated her in front of all his friends. Like basically that she was, she was basically beaten and raped while she was over there. And she vowed that when she got back, you know, we would really work on things. And, you know, she was very, um, apologetic for a lot of the stuff that previously took place in our relationship. And, and by no means was I a saint. So I'm not even trying to look good by, you know, I, I had my flaws and my issues, but she comes back from this trip and I'm at a friend's house and we spent the last couple of days, like drinking and going out and clubbing. And we were watching a basketball game that day and she's leaving the airport. She comes to pick me up from my buddy's house. So we shoot over to the liquor store and head back to her place. And she lived in a three-story loft out in Northern California. And when we were there, we got into this conversation about relationships and, you know, and things were supposed to get intimate. And I just wasn't in the right mind space. Like I knew that I shouldn't have been in there in the first place. I'd been drinking. We had already been in a domestic dispute. She had just got raped and beaten. And so, and I had this whole new God factor in my life too. So there was just a lot going on with me. And in that conversation, I was just like, you know, I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to rest this off and we'll start again at a later time. And I woke up to a banging at the door and it was a police department. They're like, you know, Robert Decker, we know you're in there, open up. And she comes downstairs and I look at her and ask her what happened. And she looks at me and she says, I called the cops and I told the police that you raped me and that you tried to kill me. And in that moment, in all my despair and all my confusion and fear and betrayal, I just looked at her and I said, I just, I can't do this anymore. I just can't live like this. And in that moment, I decided to attempt to take my life. So I ran headfirst out of a closed three-story loft window and I broke through it, all intentions of hitting that ground and breaking my neck and just ending it all. 
and my foot hit an awning and changed my fall. And I ended up hitting the pavement, collapsing my lung, breaking, shattering my arms and breaking my back. And I just laid there on the ground. I could barely breathe. I was just like a big lump of flesh just laying on the ground. And I, and I never blacked out. I experienced the whole thing. I remember looking up at that window and just asking God, why, like, why would you let me live? My body, my physical body was the only thing that I had going for me. You know, I worked out. That's what I had. And that was just now taken away from me. We head to the hospital, 10 hours under the knife. I wake up in the hospital to the police coming in and arresting me in the hospital, shackling me to the bed and throwing a million dollar bail on me. Said, Mr. Decker, you're under arrest for rape and attempted murder. And threw the cuffs on me, attached me to the bed. And at this point, like I have a back brace on, I have external fixator. If you've ever seen those, you know, it has all the bars that are coming out, like big, long screws. I had a cast on the other arm. I had pain medication tubes going into my neck. I had oxygen on my face, EKG. I mean, it was the works and I, I couldn't go anywhere. I wasn't moving. I was in just intense amounts of pain. And they put a police officer there to watch me. As I had a police officer there for the first couple of days, he didn't want to be there. I know he didn't want to be there. You know, he had other things to do. I know he kept checking his phone because I was looking at him. He had a folder next to him. And, you know, he's looking at me and he's just like, Mr. Decker, I'm reading the report and you're just a really bad guy. You know, what you're being charged of is horrendous. And I looked at that officer and I told him, I said, you know, sir, I made a lot of bad decisions in my life, but that's just not one. That's just not something I would do. And, you know, I cared for that girl, even if I didn't do it the right way or the way it should have been done. Like I really cared about that girl. And at this point I start to break down crying. I mean, I'm shaking and the nurse walks in and she asked me to calm down because I guess my heart rate couldn't get elevated. And as she's walking out, the young woman walks in. And she has a disguise on. She changed her hair. She has sunglasses on. She brought her sister with her and she has a folder in her hand. And the police officer, and I'm telling you, this police officer wasn't being nice to me at all, not even remotely. He looks at me and everything just changes. And he goes, is that who I think that is? And I look at him and I said, yes, that is. And he goes, well, this just doesn't make any sense. And he escorts her out of that building, out of the hospital. And that's the last time, last time I ever saw that young lady. As I'm laying in the hospital bed later on, it was like the next day or two. I'm asking God, like, what are we doing? I'm facing prison. I'm facing never walking again. You know, all these surgeries. I'm in a tough place. I'm in a very tough place. <laughs> and all of a sudden, in the midst of that conversation, I just get this overwhelming peace that just consumes me. It just blankets me. And I'm telling you, like the chaos of the hospital, the noises, the lights, the traffic, and then the amount of pain that I was in, regardless how much medication I was on, it was just, I was an immense amount. I couldn't move. I was in so much pain. And for a moment, like, it was just like this moment of relief. And I just hear the charges will be dropped. Your bills will be paid and you will walk again. 
and I doze off into this vision of playing soccer of all things. Like, and I, I was never a soccer player, didn't care for soccer. God revealed that to me at a much later time, but a couple days pass, you know, I wake up back to all this, this chaos and a couple days pass. And one of the officers is talking really nice young gentleman. And he goes, Hey, Mr. Decker, I just want to let you know that they're going to drop the charges. And I'm just like, wow. Right. <laughs> like, wow. What? So at a later date, they actually tried to come back at me and put the charges back on me. But in that moment, there was this big sense of relief and a few more days pass and some other officers come in. They say, Hey, Mr. Decker, you're no longer, you know, a warden of the state or this the county or whatever. And, you know, we just want to wish you the best of luck in your recovery. And I just thought it was like the kindest thing. So that was out of the way for, for the time being, that was out of the way. I know that when you're locked up in the hospital, you're basically in jail when you're in the hospital, you, you can't have visitors. And so I hadn't had any visitors for like that first week or two. And the first person that's able to come see me is my mom. And my mom and I had like a really tough track record. You know, she came out of what she came out of. Now, here I am 29 years old and, you know, I've done all my stuff and here I am. And my mom, I see her outside of that, that hospital door and she's talking to the neurosurgeon. She just breaks down crying. And I know what's being said. I know what they're saying. I know what he's saying to her. And she walks in and she's just, you know, I'm like, mom, what's going on? Nothing, son, nothing, son. I'm like, mom, what's going on? And nothing, son. I was like, mom, I know, <laughs> you know, I know what they're saying. They had told her that I was never going to walk again, or there's a great chance that I never did walk again. And I think that in my mom's most sincerest of places that she could possibly be in that moment, considering what she's came out of, what she saw me come out of, my mom walks over to the bench. She goes, son, I just wish everything had ended for you that day. Oh, and man. yeah. And here's the crazy thing. Most people are like, man, mom, you wish I died. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, mom, I love you too. You know? <laughs> I love you too, mom. You know, because for me, it was more along the lines of like, she suffered her whole life. You know, she didn't abort me. She chose to have me, you know, and then she ended up with this man who just didn't treat me well. You know, my mom got treated like crap her whole life. And then she sees me go through all the broken relationships, the drugs, the alcohol, like, you know, and she just wanted it to end. That's all she wanted. She just wanted to end. She wanted her pain to end. She wanted my pain to end. And I understood that. And I received that. And I was okay with it, you know. But in that moment, as we're having that moment, you know, the nurses, two nurses walk in and they're like, well, Mr. Decker, we're going to get you to try to stand up today. <laughs> and I knew for a fact it wasn't going to happen. I mean, I couldn't even roll over on my side without being in really bad pain. But... I'll say this, what did come to me was a couple months before I jumped out of that window, about the time that I got saved, I remember watching Passion of Christ. And I remember what Christ had done on the cross for me. And I also remember a conversation I had with a brother in Christ about his favorite chapter in all the scriptures. And he said, Isaiah 53. So I made a point of reading Isaiah 53, and I'm sure you've read Isaiah 53 and you understand it well. But that's what came to me. That vision in Isaiah 53 is what came to me. And I see my mom, my hopeless, broken mom, 
standing across from me. And I knew in that moment that I had to try to get up. I had to try to give her some hope. I had to, you know, do it for Christ because he did it for me. I knew that after I survived that fall, I knew that I was here for a reason and I didn't understand why, but I knew I was here for a reason. So I attempt to get up and in all honesty, I knew I wasn't going to. And it felt like I felt like I hit the ground all over again. I squealed the moment they got me up. They set me back down and I said, nope, it's not happening. And then the, the surgeons came in or the surgeon came in and he said, you know what? We're going to try another surgery. And uh, I went down for another 10 hours and came out of that. About two days later, nurse comes in. She goes, Mr. Decker, we're going to get you to try to walk today. And she gets me to sit up in my bed. And sitting up is more than what I could have done before. And my feet hit that ground. And, you know, I had fallen on the left side of my body. So my left side, the nerve damage from the fall and from the surgeries was just, it it was pretty intense. And I remember walking with my right leg, but dragging my left leg. And I was very excited in this moment because I'm like, you know, I'm I'm walking again. I don't care what it looks like right now. I don't care if I'm dragging a leg. But we get into the hallway And the nurse is like, are you ready to do this? And you don't understand the amount of excitement that was going on inside of me. And I took off, man. I just took off. And so my right leg was moving at like certain miles per hour, but my left leg was left behind, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I'm doing this thing where I drag my left leg and I do this kind of U-turn into the wall and I run into the wall. And the nurse just like, oh my God, are you okay? And I'm laughing. You know, I'm laughing because I know I'm going to walk again. I know that I'm going to be okay. And, you know, truth is, I didn't realize what that journey was going to look like. (laughs) But I knew that it was going to happen. And shortly after that, I ended up getting out of the hospital. My mom took me out of the hospital. and I went to go stay with her. Something that God really pressed on my heart early on when I was in that hospital. And I can look back now and tell you why he allowed me to, to break my back and go through that whole experience. But... When I was in the hospital, the Lord really pressed on my heart that your first step in healing, and this was just like his message to me. And I didn't realize what came with healing when we're talking about healing, because there was some deep stuff. But your first step in healing is to forgive the young lady that accused you of these things. And so in the hospital, I I forgave her right away because I'm like, well, Lord, I'm here. I'm here for a reason and help me. So I'd forgiven her. Well, now moving in with my mom put me into a place where I got to really get to know my mom as an adult. This is the first time I ever really got to know her, know her. And we shared some stories and I got to understand who she was. And God gave me clarity on what she came out of, who she was. She tried to do the right thing. And I remember her coming home one day from work and she walks into that front door and I break down into tears. And I said, you know, mom, I love you just because you're my mom, because God gave you to me and me to you. And that was the beginning of healing for my relationship with my mom. You know, weeks before I jumped out a window, I said some very unsavory, ungodly things that a son should never say to his mother under any circumstance. And I said those things to her. And so if I would have left this earth, just the impression that would have left on my mom, it probably would have destroyed her. And I'm very grateful that I was able to get out of that situation and that we could wipe away that stuff 
Let me jump in for just a minute, Robin. I wish I didn't have to, but I'm going to because we're a little over the time that we normally use. But if it's all right with you, I'll give you a little bit to tell people how to connect with you. And then we'll stop and we'll do another session, which will end a week after this one. And we might need to do more. But then people can hear the rest of the story. Tell people how they can connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. I have my own website called robdeckerspeaks.com. You can just access that. There's a place where you can email me. You have access to my Facebook and my Instagram. Those aren't really hard to find any. Rob Decker is my Facebook. Decker underscore Rob is my Instagram. But those are the ways that you can easily reach me. And I'm pretty sure my phone number is on there somewhere. And I always try to get back to people as soon as possible. I mean, I get a lot of emails and stuff like that after people hear the story and because it resonates with a lot of people. But that's the best way is, you know, go through initially go through the website and then figure out a way to connect after that. Great. And boy, I encourage our listeners to connect with you. Obviously, I've been to your website and seen video and the pictures and things. And uh, you're obviously in a position to help lots of people, which you are. And I want to thank you for being on today and thank everybody for listening and encourage you. Please check out the next edition a week later and you'll hear more of Rob's story. So, Rob, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everybody, for being with us today on Grace to All with Paul Gray. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.